Welcome to BizSense. Each episode, we provide an in-depth profile of a small business. We meet with owners and founders to discuss how they form their businesses, conduct their day-to-day operations, make business decisions, incorporate staff and technology, and much more. Episode 1, we sit down with Chris to discuss how he created Lantern Brewing, a craft brewery specializing in French and Belgian-style beer. He shares with us his background, what drives him to remain true to his vision, his thoughts on Lantern's place in the craft brewing market, and much, much more. Okay, cool. Well, thanks, Chris, for joining us. Thank uh, you. I'm really excited to be here at Lantern with you. It's not my first time here. It's probably about my hundredth time here. It's my first time in the office, though. <laughs> Good, yes. Expansive so, and... A very clean, very neat office. Oh, yeah. I mean, it wouldn't be a real kind of microbrewery office without the bags of hops right. in the background. But yeah, thank you again. I know that you're you're very busy, so we really appreciate you taking the time to have a chat with us today. I'm happy to do it. Okay. I just kind of wanted to get a sense of how you came into this business and where you came from. So, so where are you originally from? Uh, I'm originally from Oregon. I grew up in Portland, but I spent as much time as possible up in the hills, in the mountains, uh, you know, especially around Mount Hood, and then out on the coast um, of Oregon. So I, I feel like I'm sort of from across Oregon uh, in some ways. And is that, that where you went to school? Uh, well, I went to, to school through high school in Portland. Uh, then I went over to North Carolina. I uh, went to Duke University uh, to do undergraduate and finished there and came back to Seattle, actually. So I had friends from Portland living here uh, about the same time as I finished up there. So What did you study? Well, <laughs> my degree was around cultural anthropology. Okay. Uh, so it focused on linguistics, and um, there's a certificate that I've got in Asian and African languages and literature. So it was heavily focused on history, uh, literature, especially African French literature, French language, also Chinese language. Uh, I studied four years of Mandarin Chinese. The other part was what was termed cultural schemas. So it was trying to understand uh, <laughs> what we used to call back in the day uh, memes, um, uh, the real memes. Um, you know, trying to understand how cultural constructs were created, how they fit together, how uh, to understand culture in in a deconstructed way. So it was really interesting. I got to travel extensively across the U.S. Actually, uh, I was I went to Duke for basically the fencing program. Competed nationally NCAA circuit, and midway through college, got a chance to go and study in. Paris with a fencing coach that was uh, he was affiliated with our fencing coach there uh, it you know it was really a fantastic opportunity for any number of reasons it was a great way to you know really cement my French language being dumped in the middle of Paris uh, it was great from the standpoint of pursuing this interest in Olympic style fencing and, and competing at a really high level um, it was you know, in retrospect, equally great because it really allowed me to kind of get immersed in some of the French culture and start to learn a little bit more about Belgian style beer and the 
brewing traditions of that of that region of the world, which I'd been tangentially interested in, uh, but never really had a chance to to dive into. So when you came to Seattle, what did you first do? Did you use any of that background from college? I tried. Yeah, as we all do, right? <laughs> yeah, that <was laughs> That's the problem with undergraduates. <laughs> exactly. You come out of come out of undergraduate, starry-eyed, and you think, yes, I'll be a linguist. Uh, yeah. I ended up backing into a, sort of a usage of a, a linguistics degree because uh, some of my earlier work experiences in high school had been a lot of operational, hands-on sort of information systems or, or tech support type work as well. So that's really where I found my first employment was as a help desk. Okay. And moved from doing help desk calls to um, moving into network operations. Pretty quickly realized that, uh, well, data network protocols uh, were effectively linguistic uh, endeavors. There's heavy computer science that underlies the performance of it, but at the base of it, you know, the, the developers of those protocols were using human communication as a model. Mm-hmm. And and what's even kind of funnier is, you know, the meta of that is that, of course they were. That's, you know, that's how they expected computers to work, like people. And we were trying to create, you know, effectively human-oriented uh, intelligence in a machine. And so, of course, you'd model it after your own uh, you know communication patterns, so that was an interesting, what I might call sidebar for a good eighteen years. But you found that it it synced up pretty well once you made that connection. It synced up pretty well with with your skill set and your general kind of educational background. It did seem so. Um, Were you ever passionate about it? Uh, yeah, I was. I I dove headlong into. Um, Understanding computer network protocols, uh, data network protocols, uh, lots of other variants. Of, uh, it was, for me, really fascinating and really uh, kind of a cool thing to, to be able to sort of apply those you know, academic pursuits. Right. But, uh, you know, unfortunately, I had to dump the, the, the fencing. Uh, that just never really picked up again and I, I don't have any pretense that I'm going to go back to it. It's when you leave college athletics that you realize how much time and resources you had to pursue that right? quite purely. And now when you have to make your own two hours every day to practice yep, and join a club, yep. you realize how much you took for granted yep. uh, just having the ability to do that. I, yeah, I think this is a very, right, I mean, as you're as you're alluding, it's a very common experience where you, you all of a sudden you realize, oh wow, that was that was such a gift, right? Mm-hmm. College athletics, uh, you know, I certainly didn't appreciate it deeply enough. I've always found that successful, passionate people have often taken part in some kind of high-level athletic yeah. activity, yep. or uh, I mean, it doesn't have to be athletics but some kind of uh, competitive yeah, activity. Absolutely. And it's funny, that stays with you, that yeah. structure for doing things to train yourself. Yes, and it goes, you know, for me, it goes hand in hand with, you know, the competitive drive and the, the nature of competition is two-faced, right? You, you're on the outside trying to beat your opponent, right? I want to be, for this moment, better than you. Mm-hmm. But really what you're saying in the training context and in the development context, 
I want to be better than me. Yeah. Right. I want to be better than me right now. You know, you're, you know, and this comes back to me pretty saliently on a regular basis as I watch my, my, uh, my girls play sports. Uh, so one of my girls plays soccer right now and I'm watching her develop and watching all these other girls develop, uh, skills at the same time. And it's been really cool, uh, looking back and thinking about my own soccer experiences and then fencing because you can see those individual skills developing and that wider recognition it's okay now how do we play as a team right okay so i guess we should get started uh, with the beginnings of lantern um (laughs) just so that i don't keep you here all day i kind of wanted to start with the the inception because i think what a lot of people do is they go right to the starting of the business but oh, yeah. what I've realized is that it's it's an idea which tends to grow through multiple phases, um, usually while you're doing something else, yep. to the point where you either decide or you're able to put it into action. Thinking back, I, I'm, I'm recalling sometimes fairly soon after I felt like I got serious about homebrewing, where I started to think, huh, this is kind of an interesting endeavor. I I've loved beer for quite a while. I've been trying to, you know, I tried to homebrew in high school, uh, started out making ginger beer, which was terrible, but (laughs) learned a little bit about it and then kept trying and kept trying, you know, fairly infrequently when I first moved to Seattle. But in about 2003, four, something like that, uh, I decided I really wanted to to get, you know, kind of get more serious uh, about home brewing, and went in uh, on a uh, the purchase of a set of equipment with a friend, and so we'd brew fairly often. Was this just out of your garage? Absolutely, yep. yeah. Back this is the back patio. This is the the very familiar story for a lot of home brewers. Of you know, you start with a small pot, and all of a sudden you've got all this equipment. There was a point at which I was brewing fairly frequently and getting a lot of really positive you know in a lot of just very nice things said about it like yeah yeah it's you know it's tasty no real at that point um you know it was not good beer but it was you know at least people were polite enough to say okay it's you know i can stomach this but you know back to kind of that competitive idea uh while there are beer competitions and while there are lots of opportunities to compete i i really decided I didn't really want to. I just wanted to understand the biochemistry behind fermentation and the science behind brewing, you know, the, the, the physics and the chemistry. And um, was, at the time, you know, working this other career, doing lots of large-scale systems development, uh, looking at logical systems as well as physical, uh, you know, for example, a the infrastructure in a building, um, and then was starting to kind of merge those things to think, wow, you know, I, I've taken tours of breweries. I kind of remember seeing all these big things and lots of pipes, and you know, those kind of seem like they are in a way the same thing. You know, I'm over here in my my day to day piping lots of bits from one place to another, and they may go through some sort of transformation and come out the other end in a usable form. So I was starting to kind of 
you know, merge those worlds. And I, I think it was probably 2007 or 2008. So after being interested for a long time in homebrewing, get really serious about it, and then start to really kind of dive into the nuts and bolts of the brewing science. And then really it was the brewing operations that I started to read about and you know really try to pay attention to when I went to a brew pub and looked through the glass at all the big shiny things. Um, I realized, wow, you know, I may be able to actually do a bigger scale than just homebrew someday. Mm-hmm. Like this is interesting to me. You know, this is this is kind of a fascinating thing. How do you take stuff that grows in a field and turn it into something you can pour into a glass? Right. Probably, you know, 2008 or 9 when I finally really decided, okay, I I would love to to make a go at it, and it took a few years to kind of conceptualize how. It's interesting because I th- to hear you describe it that way what I think is is the more common story is that someone says, I want to have my own brewery. And then they work backwards from there. Yeah. It's like, okay, what do I need to what do I need to know? What do I need to do? Yeah. Whereas it sounds like you approached it from the opposite and in fact way more logical I do direction. I do everything backwards, for good or for ill. I, I have found myself to be a backwards person. I I think it's the wrong approach in a lot of cases, but it certainly taught me a lot. So maybe I can someday make the you know the right approach. I, I believe that your observation is 100% true. I, I think that most folks that I've talked with and that you kind of read about and hear about have done it that way. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't say that that's any more or less logical than the way I did it, but it's certainly much more common to see someone say, okay, well, we're going to have a brewery. Right. And then, well, here's what we're going to need to have a brewery. You know, we're going to need to get financing and we're going to need to get some recipes and we're going to need to get some partners and we're going to need, you know, all these things. Oh, well, we got to, you know, think of a good brand and a bunch of beer names. Well, okay, so let's go to the book of bad puns and start naming (laughs) beers. Um, So, yeah, I I feel like I've done a lot of those things wrong or at, at least maybe backwards. Yeah. But my solace is that, well, I did it the way that I thought was best and the way that I can work it and for better or worse, it's different, right? It's not, it's not the same as everybody else. And there's, there's no, (laughs) I I mean, honestly, you said it like you did it the wrong way or you did it backwards. I I don't see it that way at all. I think what's the most important is making sure whichever course of action you take is a personality match for you. I agree. The people who say I'm going to have a brewery and then start working backwards from there you deal with a lot of gaps yeah. in that situation yeah. and you're on steep learning curves. You're on indefinite timelines. I mean, all these yeah. things I'm sure you experienced in some way as well, but it sounds like you, you matched the process very well uh, to your personality. And it's like you said, you know, the, the, the product is, is the, the measuring stick for that. And yeah. you know, what you guys have built here is, is clearly, I think, uh, a product of a very well-matched process with with your personality and with your skill sets. Well, thank you for saying so. I, I feel like that's the case. Uh, I also am really interested to see over you know this kind of next few years, as we've got so many breweries and so much product and so many individual SKUs and you know just an immense flood. Uh, you know, it, it truly is a, a a vastly oversupplied market, mm-hmm. you know, right now. Um, I'm really keen to see uh, which way may work 
you know, to, to the advantage of living longer. Right. Does it, as you might expect in a lot of business environments, does it boil down to not only operational excellence, you know, not only uh, financial stability and, and making sure that you can keep it, you know, keep the lights on, uh, but does it really boil down to a you know, a deep drive and a lot of personal passion from the people that are making it happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I am suspecting that it does. You know, they I've talked with and heard examples countless times now of folks that started breweries, you know, fairly recently within the last five or so years, uh, who did so because they felt like it was going to be a great return. Yeah. Right. This this. this steep growth curve and you know we're getting a 20 percent uh, market penetration in craft beer and all this um and not maybe not going in with the idea that it was going to be a 20-year endeavor you know maybe going in with just well let's see what we can do in seven years you know let's see what kind of of, of aggregate rate we can get over eight and a half years and then we'll make a decision as you know on, on one way or the other and it's when i look at our product and what we're trying to do, I always try to make sure that it's got some nugget of interest behind it, some some bit that I find fascinating. You know, we put beets in beer. Why? Not merely because it's, you know, sort of, you know, a beautiful color, uh, but because I think that beets themselves are have a really fascinating history and yeah. it is a really cool color it's a great flavor it's a really interesting point but it's also a way that you can start to talk about local ingredients and you know using uh use for example we use a whole bunch of malt grown up in the skagit valley and so when we do a beer that's featuring skagit valley malt and chehalis valley hops it's something we can get passionate about right interested in and loop in people from nearby Mm -hmm. and try to further what's effectively an ulterior motive here which is for us to be able to to bolster the local economy uh, and provide sort of a hedge against um, a lot of pressures that are in my view pushing beer away from what it really should be as i look at other breweries i i see quality beer but not a lot of passion behind what they're doing. And I see an awful lot of places that have the same lineup. And, you know, we, we joke, and I've joked with you about this, you know, well, a lot of people like us because we don't do an IPA. I hope that that's shorthand for they do like the beer that we do. Right. And that they note that we don't do an IPA because it's so common. It's so much a part of the, you know, kind of the craft beer program that people used to build a brewery. Well, you you start a brewery and you get your recipes. Well, those are, of course, going to include an IPA and an amber and, uh, you know, a stout, right? Mm-hmm. Well, probably an imperial stout. Sure, okay. Um, there are countless examples of breweries that have, you know, flagship IPAs. It might be that there's just a disproportionate number of people in the brewing industry who are, you know, absolutely bonkers over massive quantities of hops. And new hops are interesting and there's always different flavors coming out but then what about you know if that's true what about their ampers and what about their stouts you know why why do they have them i hear more often than not well we kind of have to have those 
And I also hear that about IPAs. So I start to wonder, well, okay, if you feel like you have to have an IPA as your flagship and you have to have an amber and a stout to balance those things out, uh, where is the passion? You know, where is the, the real deep interest? And I'll be keen to see, A, whether we survive another three years, or B, you know, what happens to the 5,300 current breweries in the U.S.? It's insane. Yeah. And it's, it, it, you know, frankly, it's unsustainable. Yeah. Like I was saying, there's a massive oversupply. There's just too many choices for people to deal with. But I do believe that the personal passion is going to be a big differentiator. It'll, it'll come out in the wash. You know, who has that insane drive to just keep making interesting things, keep putting beer in front of people that'll engage them? Mm-hmm. On the day that people decide they don't like IPAs that much after all, or, well, okay, I do like IPAs, but I'm sort of tired of them, you know, where do they go from there? You know, how, what, who's going to be the driving force behind the next glass that they want to order. So that's, I hope we're going to be there. And I hope many other breweries can achieve that too, but it'll be interesting to see. Yeah. And so kind of what you, I think what you're effectively saying there is you're waiting to see the shakeout with the two different approaches. The other thing I was going to say when you mentioned it a while back um, with people talking about rate of return is we've all been conditioned to think of craft breweries as startups yeah. in a lot of ways. Yeah. And so we're looking at the same timelines. We're looking at the same expected rates of return versus what I think was, was your story. And from what I'm understanding is kind of the true origins of craft beer, which is it's grassroots. It's making yeah. what you like first in your garage or on your patio finding a way to scale that and and as you scale creating a, a following around your your beer versus chasing markets or demographics and letting that influence your production process um, and your marketing process yep well i i always try to keep in mind uh the the deep history of brewing um it has always been a community effort it's always been something that's been a collaborative effort between material producers. And in general, it you know, if I'm, I'm thinking back, I mean, you could probably find examples of this. Say the Hallstatt period uh, in Central Europe, uh, you know, 3000 BC, uh, roughly. Um, you would find examples of sites, or you, you'd find sites where probably barley was malted. And you'd look around and think, well... This is a small, you know, a small village somewhere on the side of a hill. Uh, there's a there, there's a ditch that someone dug. There's a lot of barley uh, seed in the ditch. Well, let's let's say this is probably an ancient malting site, but the barley was not grown, you know, immediately down the hill or up the hill. It was grown somewhere else. So there was a conscious division of effort there. Right? Somebody grew the barley. They brought it here. Somebody probably different had the skill set to malt it. You didn't have a real strong monetary system then in the, there in the first place. So from way back until really the Industrial Revolution, brewing had been mostly a communal sort of a, a social effort. There was no expected rate of return except that people got beer. Back, right. Right. That right. the beer was the thing. The beer was the was the unit of value. And 
the event itself was part of the value, mm-hmm. right? The, the the brewing of the beer itself was a big part of it. You know, that was a, a it wasn't an industrial endeavor. It was a social endeavor. So it was part of the fabric of the society itself. Um, you know, it was an event and, and everybody kind of got excited about it as they were starting to harvest their, uh, their, their barley or, you know, and or their wheat and or their spelt and or their, you know, pharaoh, whatever it was that grew around them. They were starting to get excited about the time when they were going to be able to get together and, you know, have, it's, you know, in some cases almost like a fair, right? It's almost like against the nature of beer to use it purely as a product and to approach right. it purely from the marketing standpoint um, because that that dehumanizes it in a lot of ways. As you were describing what people were doing 3000 BC, that's exactly how myself and my wife Sarah and a lot of other people in, in the community see Lantern. We always say, we, always say uh-huh. we, we wish it was open, you know, Monday through Sunday, 24 hours a day. Uh, I'm sure you don't because you would have to be behind the bar. Um, but you know, for, for those people that don't know, you guys are open Thursday through Sunday when it's Thursday at lunchtime. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking it's Thursday. I'm kind of excited, but I don't really know why because it's not Friday. It's not the weekend. And honestly, the thought comes to me, Oh, it's cause lantern is open tonight. We can get home from work walk the dogs, and then head down here. And by head down here, I mean literally walk down the hill. Yeah. And the thing we love about it is while we're walking down the hill, the, the three blocks that we come here, we will guaranteed see other people walking in the same direction that we know will be ending up here. Um, we call it the Lantern Pilgrimage. <laughs> uh, and that's really what it feels like is, is come 5.30 or 6. It's almost like everyone's door opens in unison and everyone yeah, right. gathers down here. And so you've managed to keep that long, long tradition alive. We love your beer, but equal to that is, is the, that sense of community. Um, that's, that's been a hugely humbling and really cool aspect that I didn't expect. Um, when we chose and, and, uh, took the building you know i chose it basically basically because it was operationally very sound and it offers good access to to uh, highway 99 here uh, you know and all the you know the price per square foot the, the sustainability the um all the other kind of fundamentals were all there but i really even though i only live two miles west of here and have had friends that live you know very close to here uh i didn't realize that it was going to be that much of a sort of a central location Mm -hmm. and that that was one of those realizations that really very much stoked my my passion for it again because um it turns out that we've been able to have people come in enjoy a beer and then they start to meet their neighbors and then you know the the sense of the community starts to build so it has been a really cool example of that and I, I, you know, I, I'm almost embarrassed to say that because after having spouted off about the, you know, the, the social values and things like that, I, I had just kind of put that in the back of my mind and not really thought about it. But of course, of course it is. You know, of course, when you have a location where a lot of people can kind of come, you know, on an infrequent or frequent basis and start to see the same faces and start to, you know, meet each other, of course, 
good things are going to come of it uh, because that's kind of the nature of people and especially that's the nature of people in a community. People in general want to meet other people. People in general want to talk with other people and see what's going on and, and you know make connections. And so that was a really cool thing to see. That really is the dream. And I think a lot of people spend a lot of time and money trying to artificially create that. And that maybe the reason it, you said oh. it was kind of in the back of your mind was, again, I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but it doesn't seem like this is a, this is a fundamental part of your, your marketing strategy. It's simply that you make good beer and you've created an environment which is conducive. Um, and people don't, I've noticed this too, is that people don't need more than that. Um, the draw is the, the product yeah. and the community. You know, I've noticed you guys don't host crazy events. Um, I mean, you're, you're, you're spot on that we don't, you know, fill up the calendar with a lot of stuff. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that I don't believe that a lot of that is necessary. Right. And I don't feel like now, you know, kind of in, in retrospect, as we've seen the enjoyment that people have here without all that stuff, I really don't feel like it's necessary for anybody else's entertainment, right? Right. Because as you were saying, it, it uh, it's just such a gift to be able to sit down and chat with your significant other and just have a beer. So in terms of getting started here, I, you already touched a little bit on how you chose the space. How did you guys uh, source the equipment? I, I always think it's very interesting. I spent quite a while specking equipment, researching, getting quotes and then bids. Um, the cost of used equipment at the time, so this is 2009-2010, the rate of new breweries opening had started to increase. Mm -hmm. right? It was still nowhere near what it is today. Uh, 2010, I think there were still nationally 1,800 breweries, something like that. So Lantern was still uh, kind of in the, the, the first wave of new stuff. So the resulting pressure on used equipment was still somewhat soft. Okay. Um, but as we got closer and closer to really making the purchase decision, I decided that it was probably wiser to go ahead and get new equipment. Mm -hmm. The differential was not super great. It was 20% difference at the time, um, you know, which is not insignificant. But I, I figured that over the life of the equipment, you know, it was... Uh, much more likely that used equipment was going to have severe issues, much less likely that new equipment would. So that actually made that 20% differential pretty much disappear. Um, the systems aspect of it, too, was um, pretty important to me in the sense that having kettle sizing, kettle construction, uh, pipe sizing, pump sizing, electrical controls, all this other stuff, it was much more difficult to get used equipment as a system. Okay, that all synced up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could you could find somebody who was casting off their old mash tun. Right? You know, I'm getting a bigger mash tun, so here's my old smaller one. Well, you can pick that up for less less money than you know a uh, a comparable new one. But then, how much time? How much effort are you going to spend integrating? You know, and then back to that that prior career of systems design that that actually i had ways of kind of understanding oh wow you know sure it's maybe half as much mm -hmm. but wow it's going to be five times as much trying to integrate that in so sourcing equipment then was somewhat simplified because it narrowed 
the field to a few suppliers. Uh, I really wanted to keep our equipment supplier local, even though there were more and more um, foreign suppliers, German, Slovakian, a lot of equipment coming from both Taiwan and mainland China, which was attractive for a while just based on the price points. But I, you know, again, I wanted to keep as much of this whole endeavor locally focused as possible. So then that, you know, started to shrink things down in terms of uh, decision making. And we ended up specking some equipment, uh, starting to work with a manufacturer who's down in uh, Oregon. If you don't mind me asking, because uh, I know this can be a sensitive question uh, for businesses, what was your initial funding situation? Did you guys source capital? Did you self-fund? We are self-funded. Yeah, I saved every penny I could for almost 20 years of working. Um, and decided that, you know, on the on the day that we really decided we were going to make this happen, uh, my, my, we, my wife and I, thought, well, all right, you know, we've got this, you know, what they refer to as the nest egg, right? Yeah. This amount of savings uh, and some capital that we can use. Well, sorry, I should say we are mostly self-funded because we actually do have a, a small bank loan as well. So it wasn't quite enough. It turns out it never is. We did do a small, uh, basically an equipment loan uh, for a majority of the um, major equipment. So we, we partially self-funded and then partially did a loan for the, the major equipment. Previously, we were talking about being forced into a mindset about rate of return. And that is the one thing about uh, sourcing lines of credit is you know what the interest rate is on those. Yeah. And that quite quickly forces you into, in order to, to make this a good investment. Yeah. I need to be making a rate of return, so I can see the benefits to that. The, you know, your 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 point though is really good. If you do accept a loan, or if you do have uh, investors who do expect, you know, other non-bank investors who do expect some rate of return, it does force you to choose some products that maybe you're not that passionate about. Right. right. Go back to our conversation about passion. Right. Um, again, I might be doing this out of sequence, but I feel like we're on the topic. How do you guys approach expansion into the market? Well, no, you know, nothing beats just getting out and <laughs> walking around and selling. We are still at such a small sliver of market presence that, uh, quite literally, you know, getting out and walking around makes a difference. We still have a lot of just basic sales that are available to us. You know, even before I get to the point where I consider that we're at a threshold where we say, oh, okay, well, now we have to expand. Mm-hmm. We're just, you know, we're still under that. Okay. So there, there's still, you know, quite a lot of pretty basic opportunities that we have to take advantage of before I will think like, uh, okay, well, now we have to expand. When I have allowed myself to kind of dream about that, I've thought, well, we need to really do right by the folks that are buying our beer right now in Seattle, predominantly, and you know, we have somebody in Burien, uh, who I was very excited to expand down there. Uh, Bothell, you know, we, we, we get up to Bothell every once in a while, and Kirkland, you know. So those, th- th- in, in geographic terms and in market terms, you know, we're still super, super local. Mm-hmm. And like I said, there's still so many places to go and talk with folks. But as we do start to get a little more presence in the neighborhoods in Seattle... Uh, we will think about kind of logical steps as far as the geographic expansion. And all that is going to then 
make me think a little harder about you know operational expansion and then you know eventually a different venue or an additional venue so um so i'm noticing a very common theme here which is again you're approaching it the way that's aligned with it seems like your personality where you're reaching these thresholds on the way to a bigger decision so you're not thinking okay market expansion what do i need to do in order to make that happen you're saying let's hit yeah. this sales goal or this production yeah. goal um let's make these type of beers that we want to make see what people think about them and then that'll give us a sense of, of what we want to do with with the wider market and geographic expansion yes i've seen grand plans you know i've been a part of doing playing exercises for expansions into markets right and i'm consciously trying to avoid some of that grandiosity because i know how hard it is just to take these steps right i'm not presuming anything uh from my standpoint i think there are some people that would say well that's you know way too risk averse um you know why not why not take a bigger chance i have a really intimate knowledge over what it takes to just get beer into kegs Mm -hmm. and the time and and effort it, it is take the keg somewhere and then oh by the way you got to go get the keg and bring it back right so yeah i'm very much very focused and very narrowly focused right now on just sort of stoking that bonfire into something that's more of a consideration most distributed beer comes from breweries who are effectively vassal breweries right mm-hmm. they, they brew beer that's distributed and they sort of enter into these agreements and then they the whole reason for their existence becomes to su- satisfy this contract of supply. So that's another reason why I just want to focus on you know the next batch of beer, understanding our sales currently, and understanding where they could expand very locally. Try to go you know two doors down from where we are now. Try to make another sale. Try to just keep that going long enough so that it makes sense to start talking about putting beer in kegs and going to. Vancouver, Washington. Right. Ooh. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think of the way a lot of people look yeah. at risk profile is the moment I understand it, the moment I have a grasp on it or I'm comfortable with it, I need to move to a, a higher risk profile. Mm. I think in, in, in terms of that expansion mindset. Mm-hmm. But there is so right. much value to knowing through experience uh, and through trial and error the, the boundaries and limits of your risk profile. And then expanding your operations and your business within that till the point where you're coming up against the limits. Yeah. Um, so that's something that, that, that I respect a lot. Well, it does seem that it's in an age that is so service-driven and in an age that is so digitally oriented that it's difficult for folks sometimes to grasp that um, you know, making stuff is inherently risky. And it it does bring you know a whole set of considerations to the table that when you talk about especially in terms of marketing via social media, people start to get you know I think they blur the lines too often between the digital world and the the physical world where you say well you know it's a product it's let's just treat this as if it was any other product you know your product is the same as some other product so just market it online or you know expand uh, aggressively and just make sure you can get a presence right and that the presence will then draw the orders mm-hmm. and the you know the, the orders themselves then will you know sort of snowball into 
more production. But yeah, I, you know, again, this is my, my, my Luddite view on it. You got to make sure that you can keep in mind the quality. I mean, that for me, that's, that's almost foremost. A brewery that tries to supply beer widely can be successful at that. But is the quality of the beer going to be not only the same, not only consistency, which is what you usually hear as a baseline for quality, but is it going to be excellent? Right? Mm-hmm. Is it going to be really good beer? Is it going to be beer that, that people are going to be excited about and that you know the makers themselves can be excited about? And mm-hmm. good? Who cares if you get the same IBU value from batch to batch? Who cares if you get the same color value from batch to batch if the beer itself doesn't bring a lot of enjoyment to people? Right. And so that's that much less easily achieved measure. But, you know... If you take some measure of people's excitement and some measure of people's uh, the drinker's happiness into account somehow, then you know that's kind of where I'm interested in the measure. Yeah, and you have to be able to see them to gauge that. That's qualitative, uh, and you have to be the one serving them the beer to see their reaction to it. Often. Would you say that's yeah. Um, yeah. given that we're on the subject of expansion? I think that there is also a, a big misconception that. By increasing the size and scope of your business, you're actually reducing your risk profile. You know, we've been conditioned by the the headline examples out there. By owning everything, right. <laughs> they're effectively reducing their risk. Well, right. in, for their business model, I, yes, that is correct. But that's because they have a core group of shareholders who are okay with them not turning a profit. Whereas you, as, as your primary shareholder is yourself, your risk profile is not reduced by expansion. In fact, it's significantly increased yeah. uh, in ways that you don't fully understand. Yeah. Um, so it's, in, it's interesting hearing you talk about it because I've noticed that a lot, is that people think you know, expansion is reducing my risk profile. Um, well, it may or may not be, but it's very dependent on what the conditions of your business are. Yes. And how you're funded and and where you continue to get funding. So, again, I'm jumping around a bit, but you were talking about uh, quality and the, the, the qualitative assessment of the beer that you're making. Mm-hmm. Being here, you know, you don't have to be here very long to realize that there's a, a large creative element that goes into to what you do. You've talked about equipment, the scientific process, um, building systems, but there's a lot of choices that you guys have made and I think made very well primarily the beer that you brew but thanks for saying so outside of that um I'm just trying to score a free a free growler (laughs) um but uh you know everything really everything down down to the aesthetic that you've created here in the tasting room and aesthetic of of no aesthetic well (laughs) but people spend millions of dollars trying to create uh a minimalist aesthetic whereas you guys have nailed it uh no i mean i I really nice picnic tables yeah i genuinely like the aesthetic a few times i've looked up and kind of looked around and the lights over the bar and and just just the way that the the tasting room is set up I think has a creative aspect and element to it. How do you make these these creative decisions uh, about? I guess primarily about the beer you brew, but all the other little, small, but very important decisions that, that get made from a creative standpoint. That is very much a joint effort slash. Well, it, it's most often a joint effort between Lori and I to to sort of hash things out. Like, how are we going to set up the tables? We'll stand and jabber at each other for a while about you know the feel of it. So I think a lot of it 
and and I've heard this before. It's it's deeply appreciated. I think that the you know the aesthetic in terms of the environment in the tasting room, uh, a lot of that comes simply from not trying to put too much thought into it. Mm-hmm. Frankly, uh, you know, I'm I don't want to seem like we're completely ignorant of it, but we did get very lucky just with the shape and the lighting and the general layout of the place, and it just. You know, it turns out that we made some lucky decisions about the the tables and the you know the, the the fact that picnic tables do end up being sort of cozy, even though you know they're literally these cheap picnic tables. Yeah, but it's kind of nice because nobody is going to worry about leaving a stain on a picnic table, right? And right. it's it's a very sort of welcoming thing. And so I guess the you know sort of the overarching theme with the creative decisions on the retail side are, you know, how does it make Lori and I feel, and then how you know when we have our our friends come in, you know they'll say, "Oh man, you know I really like that." Oh wow, I really don't like that. So we, you know, it's it's very much a human, uh, a, a very low level thought process. And people are pretty candid with their feedback. Yeah, blissfully so. Okay, yeah. So <laughs> it happens after deeply, a few years. Yeah, so exactly. People get very honest. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you know that new sign? That's stupid. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, wow. Thank you. I appreciate that. Duly noted. Put it Duly, in the spreadsheet. Let's, let's take that one down. <laughs> Uh, on the kind of on the you know the beer and beer creation side, um, uh, the, it's almost a. I sort of think of it, of it sometimes as the opposite of a creative process, uh, in the sense that I'm consciously constraining a lot of the decisions that I make around what type of beer to brew, what to put in the beer, you know, what sort of presentation are we going to make, in the sense that I I really I want to keep pursuing this narrow focus area of, you know, kind of the northern part of continental Europe because it's so deep and so rich, right? So I'm, I'm saying, well, we're going to brew a beer that's inspired by Belgium and France. So my choices are going to be a little bit constrained intentionally around that one little geographic area. But it does bring up a lot of interesting frameworks, the Abbey beers, the modern interpretations of Abbey beers, the fruited beers, the long-aged beers, the sours, and all these things that then present themselves as frameworks for creative choices. The other kind of constraint that I'm forcing on myself is to use Washington-grown ingredients. So I, I really have a very limited number of things that aren't grown here in Washington, uh, and it's very intentional. Like, I don't want to do a mango beer mangoes don't grow here. There are a lot of reasons for me to kind of eschew a lot of the things that are not grown here, but by limiting a lot of those choices, I find that it then forces me to be a little bit more creative. The smaller number of choices sometimes actually forces you to to make more interesting decisions about you know, which, which hops. Well, I'm not going to use New Zealand hops. And so let's use, if you want that flavor profile, that that might bring, figure out some other way to do it. Yep. Right. You know, the same with, <clears throat> same with any other, you know, ingredient. Same with any other idea behind beer. Absolutely. And again, we talked a lot about things that are undervalued or, or misconceptions, and, and that is one hundred percent. Is is that pure creativity often comes from constraint versus yeah. having every option available to you. Yeah. And that touches back to the community history behind the brewing of beer is you could only use the ingredients that were a horse-drawn cart right away. And so 
if people wanted something different, you had to use what you had to create it. And I've heard this a lot with fruit is like, apparently there are some studies which say it's bad for us to eat fruit, which is not in season where we are. Right. Now, I don't know if we could swing scientific studies to say that, you know, drinking three pints of beer uh, is good for you as long as it's in season. Um, but well, federal regulations forbid right. the brewery from making any health claims. So, no. But I'm guessing that 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 maybe plays into it as well. Is yeah. I don't want to be drinking a mango infused IPA in the middle of winter right. in Seattle. Uh, firstly, it's going to make me wish I was on a beach somewhere when right. I'm not. Right. And second off, it just doesn't doesn't really feel natural. Everything's been done. Right, everything under the sun. So brewing has been going on for thousands of years. There's this idea that it started in you know, the the Fertile Crescent and you know spread everywhere else, but you know that's archaeologically doesn't appear to be exactly the case. Right, there are many different independent inventions of brewing, and each of those areas had kind of their own approach to doing it. So not only has brewing beer and you know effectively making mixed uh, fermentation's been going on for thousands of years. It, it's been done in so many different ways than that that we'll never even know of. That I don't feel like there's any inherent value in trying to come up with oh you know an interesting combination just because it's a combination. Mm-hmm. There is inherent value in coming up with an interesting combination if it is coming from a place of deep interest. Mm-hmm. If it's something that you think people will really enjoy. And, you know, the, the, the foodist in me says, well, that's really where you have to drive to, is something that's interesting to somebody's taste buds and nose. Conceptual combinations, sometimes those are fun, but they're really not that great. Talking about this, I'm also realizing that, in a way, you have a responsibility in that sense. With a lot of people moving to Seattle, yeah. Um, I don't think they're necessarily brand new to the craft brewery scene, but they're certainly seeing it in a different way here, you yeah. know, a, a culture which is kind of built around it. And so maybe, I, I don't know, I may be rambling here as well, but I feel no. like if someone is new to the craft brewery scene as a consumer... This actually touches on why I chose that you know, sort of narrow geographic region in the first place, um, you know, kind of as our focus area. Not, not just because I studied French and, and kind of had a, a personal connection to that area of the world, but because all of the beer that I was seeing by breweries in the, generally in the U.S., but especially from this part of the U.S., that were labeled Belgian-style something, uh, were not that good, and they were turning people off. And for a long time, and in fact, that's been kind of a driving force behind what we do, I, I'm trying to sort of reclaim that phrase. Because for a long time, it was almost a joke phrase. And, you know, talk about turning people off of craft beer. Yeah, serve them something in a glass that you called Belgian style because it was a flawed fermentation. And, you know, just turn people off of an entire region of brewing history. Uh, that's terrible. That's absolutely the last thing that uh, craft brewing industry needs to do, but it kept happening, and it it still happened. And so, you know, responsibility. I feel a personal responsibility to represent these beer styles very well. Like, you know, not just authentically, but in a way that people will embrace in the longer term, and in a way that makes them excited to try other examples of it. Right. 
um, and then hopefully in a way that makes them much less afraid and much less worried about trying something else that's labeled craft beer. You can't just make a blanket statement that says, well, people that drink Budweiser, Miller, Coors are undereducated and that they just make bad choices about their beer. That's absolutely not the case. Those are actually highly engineered, widely available products that sell well for a reason. And the reason is that they are palatable. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to go so far as to say they're all excellent, but they are well-brewed beers, and they are very uh, widely enjoyed. And it's you know you can't make a judgment that says, well, they're enjoyed just by people that don't know any better. No, you have to be able to say, well, yeah, those are products that are enjoyed. This the can of beer that somebody really looks forward to having um, at the end of the day. Maybe I should brew something similar. Not just completely, you know, in the other direction, full, so, so chock full of flavor, you know, hops, coffee, you know, chocolate, whatever it is. Don't go that direction. Go the other direction. Brew something that's very simple and plain and innocuous and do it well and do it so that it winds up in front of that person. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, you, you do have a, a high degree of responsibility for creating products that are not then going to alienate your fellow industry members uh, products. Yeah. And the stakes are high because there are so many beers out there now. Yeah. So if you walk into a brewery, they've got 25 beers on tap. You try the Belgian style ale. Yeah. You don't like it. Yeah. Oh, I don't like Belgians. Yeah. The next time you go in there, you've got 24 other options. You're never going to come back or you're less likely to come back. Yeah. So that's, uh, I agree with you hundred percent. I think there is a lot of responsibility. Just to kind of finish up, I think we've kind of covered in general your, your, what your day-to-day looks like, your, your operations, I think, mm-hmm. through various conversations that we've had. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your favorite and least favorite parts about, I guess, running a business in general, but more specifically, your, your day-to-day? Well, let's see. And sorry, the reason I ask is because I think a lot of people who start and run businesses are so focused on process and getting things done yeah. that there are times when they don't step away and ask themselves, what am I enjoying about this and what's, what am I not enjoying? And so for people who are looking to, to start a business um, or to create a small business, that can often get lost. So I'm always interested. You, you, know, you seem pretty introspective. And so that, that was kind of my reasoning behind that. Yeah. Thank you for the setup. So it's critical to ask oneself that uh, pretty frequently, right? What, mm-hmm. you know, am I enjoying this? What am I enjoying about it? And your, you know, your 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 own experience tells you this, and I'll I'll verify it that as an operator, you do tend to get focused on operational details quite often, yeah. right? Um, but one of the things that I've kind of been able to step back a little bit and ask myself is. What I, what part of this, if anything, what part of this am I enjoying? And uh, I've found for myself that, I mean, the easy answer is, well, everything. Because I wouldn't be doing it otherwise. The more truthful, the more full answer is, I enjoy the complexity itself and the, the challenges that arise. The, the ability to work through those challenges. And so that that's, you know, kind of a little pathological in a way, but... Uh, but since 
you know, as a small business operator, you, you end up having to wear so many hats. You kind of have to enjoy the various hats that you wear. And I do, you know, in any one of those realms, really kind of find deep fascination. You know, I love, uh, you know, I'm terrible at sales, but I love it when I go on sales calls and have somebody, you know, make some unsolicited comment like, hey, we had a customer who said they really liked your wit beer. Like that just makes my day. Because, you know, making the sale, that's all, you have to do that, right? That's that's part of the, the life of the business. So I, I'm not good enough at it to really love you know, and, and do it all the time. Uh, plus I've got all these other things going on. So that's, you know, that's an example of one role that I play where I can find some enjoyment in maybe just a real simple thing. Um, but you know, in all the other roles, uh, the operational role in here, I, I find that I'm, uh, pretty excited every day when I walk in the door and it's a whole new sort of environment. You know, maybe there's something fermenting. Maybe there's something that needs to be uh, cleaned up. Maybe there's, you know, some some small or or large scale project that I've got to make some headway on. But every time I kind of walk in the door, even on the days where I spend two hours in the morning, you know, sort of planning it through, when I walk in the door, it you know, it's all of a sudden real, and mm-hmm. it's it's right there in front of you, and you go, oh wow, this is exciting. You know, like what kind of crazy stuff am I going to find today? You know, what did I forget yesterday that I'm going to have to scramble to do today? Or what kind of really kind of cool technology or operations am I going to be able to do today? Um, you know, is it packaging? You know, yay, let's see what kind of a mess we can make and then clean up with bottles. Uh, regulatory, it's the same thing. You know, it's, I mean, in a lot of ways, just a hassle doing reports and filing excise tax returns on a monthly and quarterly basis it you know it can be a drag but at the same time it it's a game it's it's a you know a a well formulated rule centric game that you have to be good at playing if you want to play for a long time right. so you know you find the energy to to do those reports it seems to be equal parts your background and in a, in a sense the way your brain is wired um, yeah, I, but also perspective right Yep. compartmentalizing and looking at these things. Yeah, I think I'm very lucky in having the background that I, you know, was afforded growing up, going to school, you know, working at a, a big company that afforded a lot of stability and, a, you know, ability to look at things in a different way, technical and program management and all these other aspects, and get a lot of experience that all of a sudden all kind of comes together here and uh, makes sense. Yeah. 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 Well, I think that's it for me. I just want to to kind of finish off by really thanking you for your time. Thank you. But I think way more than that, thanking you for, for creating and sustaining this place. Because I think it, it, it means a my lot. My pleasure. We, we were chatting the other day when my wife and I were here for a beer, and I kind of said it as a joke. I said, you could raise a small army in Greenwood if you ever needed to get anything done. But I, I really believe that that's the case, and I think that that's a testament to you and to Laurie and the other people involved in the business, but also to this this place that you've created, and so it's not, you already know that I'm sure. But yeah, I um, love I love that I love that aspect of it. Yeah, and I you know from from one person to another, this is I think a lot of people see businesses as their primary function being to sustain, if not enrich, the owner and operators of the business. But what's gotcha. what's been lost yeah. is is 
how much value they can bring to a, a community as well. Yeah. Um, and to individual people. And I think you guys have done that uh, in, well, in any number of ways. Thank you. We'll, uh, we'll keep trying. Keep going. That's, yeah. that's actually really important to us. So, yeah, thanks for, thanks for noting that.